The stars are mansions built by nature's hand, and haply there the spirits of the blessed dwell, clothed in radiance, their immortal vest. Huge ocean shows within his yellow strand, a habitation marvelously planned for life to occupy in love and rest. All that we see is dome or vault or nest or fortress reared at nature's sage command. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Oh yeah, William Wordsworth. William Wordsworth, 1770 to 1850. Blimey, that was a mouthful of a poem. How beautiful was that, though? Yeah. I mean, the way I read it. It was beautiful the way you read it. Yeah, thanks. You might notice that the rhyming of that is like Abba, Abba. Abba, Abba, okay, there we go. Um, Here I go again. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Oh, dear. Matt, we've got we've got some responsibility yeah. to to be good this week, haven't we? Oh, big time! We'll speak about that later. But first, mm-hmm. on this day, on this day, twenty sixteen, what happened? Uh, uh, a new frontiers mission called Juno arrives at Jupiter. Not only one of the best missions ever. One of the best, if not the best, synthesizer ever made, right? <laughs> it's a really good synthesizer as well. Uh, yes, yeah, yes really I'll good. give you that. I'll give you that. It is. What's your favourite, Matt? The 60 or the 106? The 60, Juno 60. Great. Yeah, it's warmer, isn't it? It's warmer. It's got less so, tonal Matt, shaping. <laughs> less tonal shaping. Arrives at Jupiter and begins a 20-month survey of the planet. Yeah. I mean, historic, no? Yeah, we... We historic, and it's gone much further than that. So how far it travelled for almost five years, went one point seven four billion miles. That's two point eight billion kilometers, or almost nineteen times the distance of Earth to Sun, or an AU to you and me. Yeah, you'd have to stop off and fill up at least twice, wouldn't you? Yeah, but that mission's been extended. Beyond, so it, it should have ended by now, but it's been expend, extended till July 2021, and I reckon it will go on much further than that. That is just insaniac. I love it. And the photos, Matt. Oh, yeah. The photos are just, is there anything more beautiful? Well, no, and, and I, I really do want to give a special word up for Sean Doran. I hope that's how you yes. say his name, because I, I, I'm always, whenever he posts on Twitter, I get quite excited because his 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 processing of the Juno pictures are is quite incredible. The fact the fact that it you can kind of see something. fluffy white clouds in all that kind of swirlingness really is incredible. Who doesn't love a fluffy white cloud, but my my favourite probably is the Aurora over the north and south poles. Yeah. Yeah that was to do with Juno as well, wasn't it? That it was a sort of it was, it was a capture by Juno. Yeah absolutely yeah. insane. Yeah, Genius. but but there's something I I, I either forgot or didn't know this, but there is a there's a plaque that was supplied by the Italian Space Agency uh, as a uh-huh. tribute to Galileo, and of course it's about the very first time that anyone realised that Jupiter had moons, 
and it's and yes. basically it's a it's an extract from one of Galileo's diaries, I think, and it goes like this: The star closest to Jupiter was half the size than the other, and very close to the other. So that during the previous nights, all of the three observed stars looked of the same dimension and among them equally afar. So that it is evident that around Jupiter there are three moving stars invisible till this time to everyone. Oh, that is glorious. But imagine that. Imagine being Galileo and going, I am the first person ever to see this yeah i just can't imagine what that would be like I mean, not, and especially considering how special some of jupiter's moons are appearing to be oh you don't need to tell me no, it's not even you know, i love there. a moon yeah we love the moons matt i was very close mm-hmm. yesterday mm-hmm. i still might do it very close to getting uh, my europa tattoo Oh yeah, man! I might get a t- I was close. I might get a Titan tattoo. I'm getting exciting. How much should we go together? Yeah, maybe they'll give us a discount. Oh if we yeah, do it two at one. and we can hold each other's hands you know I mean? through the pain. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, it's all right, Matt. It's nearly over. Oh yeah, I need to find a part of my body that doesn't hurt. Yeah, mm. that's not. Where are you having it done? That presumably on your face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, my forehead. <laughs> There's no, nothing, you know, somewhere there, subtle. There is nothing more attractive and less scary, and definitely it means that you're totally employable if you get tattoos on your yeah. face. I always think that. What mother-in-law wouldn't want their daughter <laughs> to, to marry, marry a, a tattooed son face who's got yeah. Europa and the Whalians tattooed on his face? Oh, excellent. Well, you, I'll tell you what. What else went I'll with? Tell what, I'll tell you. It's a beautiful thing. Do you know? Do you know what else went with Galileo to Juno and he's whizzing round? Go on. Three little Lego minifigures. What? Yeah, there's a little Lego minifigure of Galileo, one of Jupiter, the Roman god, and one of Juno, the goddess. But they're instead of being made of plastic, they're made of aluminium, like flight-grade aluminium, by Lego to go... Actually on, by Lego? Yeah, so they, they, you know, had this had enough room yeah, to stick class. these three little lego minifigures that are going around with juno right now cool is that i love that i'll tell you what else i love matt we've got a birthday we we? have got a birthday and this i didn't know anything about this so i got really excited about it so yes andrew ellicott douglas or i think he's better known as a e douglas or douglas year of birth 1867 year of death 1962 okay but, it's a good life. Yeah, so he started off working for Percy Lowell, who is, of course, famous for his canals on Mars, which, uh, yes. which probably are really him looking at the tiny veins in his own eyes at the back of the retina. Um, but, yeah. yeah, weird is that. But he, So he was, yeah, he was an assistant at the observatory and fell out with Lowell over the over the, the whole canals and other kind of mad theories of cusps of Venus and all that kind of crazy stuff. That is mad. I keep thinking about the veins in the eyes, Matt. Oh, do you know what I heard the other day, which is absolutely amazing about, about uh, yeah, that your retina and all those little veins. If you have like a highly trained person that looks at those, uh, or, or your sort of retinal print at the back of your eye, they cannot yeah. tell the difference between men and women. Whereas nowadays, an AI looking at the exact same thing 
can. It can tell the difference between men and women. And they have no idea what it's seeing that they can't see. Are you serious? No, I am absolutely deadly serious. That's how Ace AI is getting. Can we edit in a dun dun dun? I absolutely love this guy because I've been trying to think of how to eloquently say what, what I'm about to tell you he said. But anyway, he went Go off on. and built a telescope in Tucson, Arizona. I've been there. Yes, I know. As you keep rubbing it <laughs> Shall in. Shall I tell my story again <laughs> no, of, of the cookies? Don't tell your story again. <laughs> so I know I repeat If myself. you can remember what podcast you told that story on first, we can maybe just say, just listen to podcast yeah. 106 for it Jamie's it's not it's not worth listening back cookie cookie stories or just listen to them all and yes maybe a listener can write in and tell us which episode that was and you can win an interplanetary mug for your efforts you win an interplanetary <laughs> mug that you can dip your warm cookie into yeah so he founded the steward observatory with the money uh-huh. from a very rich woman called Mrs. Lavina Steward who'd, whose husband had died and she decided no I must do something for astronomy but it took an yes. absolute age to build this thing because he wanted to build this enormous telescope. And uh, it took him ages because the Europeans, who were the people, the experts at building glass at the time for these for these huge uh-huh. mirrors, um, were busy with the First World War. So he managed to persuade loads of American glassmakers to kind of skill up. and um, Skill up. Oi, skill up. And he finally got this thing built. And when it opened, he gave a speech, and I absolutely this is this is absolutely brilliant. And talk about sage. You ready for it? I'm ready. What accent do you want me, me to do it? Should I do it in an American one? Uh, I don't, yeah, go for it. What's an Arizonan accent like? Um, I, I'd I, say probably a bit more aggressive. Really? As in a little bit more harsh. Yeah. This installation is to be devoted to scientific research. Scientific research is business foresight on a large scale. It is knowledge obtained before it is needed. Knowledge is power, but we cannot tell which fact in the domain of knowledge is the one which is going to give the power. And we therefore develop the idea of knowledge for its own sake, confident that some one fact or training will pay for all the effort. This, I believe, is the essence of education, wherever such education is not strictly vocational. The student learns many facts and has much training. He can only dimly see which fact and which training will be eminent use to him. But some special part of his education will take root in him and grow and pay for all the effort which he and his friends have put into it. So it is with the respect Search institutions in this observatory, I sincerely hope and expect that the boundaries of human knowledge will be advanced along astronomical lines. Astronomy was the first science developed by our own primitive ancestors thousands of years ago because it measured time. Performing that same function, it has played a vast part in human history, and today it is telling us facts forever wonderful about the size of our universe, perhaps tomorrow it will give us practical help in showing us how to predict climatic conditions into the future. Well, to any of our American listeners, can you let us know how accurate that Arizonian accent was? <laughs> I think it was good. Man, yeah. It was good. That's exactly what I was thinking. Was it? That kind of, yeah. Wow, what a quote too, eh? It's... I've, yeah, I just I got into an argument when with someone quite recently about what's the point of science, and it's just like 
you, you don't right. really know as in what's the point of doing scientific research that doesn't seem that seems to be open ended it's like that's the whole point about open you you never know where it's going to go and it always goes somewhere not. amazing yeah what what kind of question is that what's the point of anything but anyway this isn't even what he's yeah. this isn't even what he's famous for there's another part of him that i absolutely love that 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 really everyone should be and that's a polymath because he then for some bizarre reason got interested in dating wood so you know you know okay. you get rings you know you get rings of wood people had started yeah. like digging up you know old buildings and things like that in the southwest of America, you know, things like the Aztecs and all those kind of stuff. And it was uh-huh. all these wooden ruins. Now, they started to be able to date things because if you've got a bunch of wood, you can look at the rings and the distance between the rings and they all sort of form different patterns and you can sort of have this catalogue of dates. A.E. Douglas realised yeah. and helped them get this massive ladder of dates across a much larger area and so with his help they managed to for example get the aztecs aztec ruins dated to around 11 11 11 20 kind of time and he okay. and he and this is what he said of the piece of timber that helped him do it he said hh 39 in an american archaeology is destined to hold a place comparable to egypt's rosetta stone wow that's a bold statement isn't it you know, in terms of archaeology and, and ancient American history, he's he's quite a big figure. But his big breakthrough is he discovered the correlation between tree rings and sunspot cycles. Okay. Thus, wow. thus founding dendrochronology, or or Oof. certainly helping in, which is, as you know, if you take your Latin, it just translates as tree ring dating. Uh, yeah. yeah, TRD. <laughs> TRD, exactly. Yeah, dendrochronology. Dendrochronology obviously is used to calibrate radiocarbon dating. It's used to estimate climates for hundreds of thousands of years so we know what the climate of the planet was like. You can Art historians use it to, to confirm or deny the age of certain paintings that are painted on wood. And uh, there's in England... There is, of course, things like the um, Somerset levels, the timber trackways in the Somerset levels that have been dated to 3,838 BC, over, you know, way over 5,000 years old. Uh, That's That's old. Yeah. And isn't it brilliant when you get someone that goes down different routes and then ties up his expertise across several disciplines and then creates something even more meaningful? I just think it's beautiful. What a genius. What a genius. And do you think like one day that we'll be using dendrochronology or ice cores or sediment cores or those kind of things on another world like Titan? Or Europa. Or Enceladus. I think I think we might be. Mm. Watch this space. Watch this space. Jamie, what's been happening in space news? Well, space news, we've got the or- Orion orbit test, Matt. Mm-hmm. During approximately a three-minute test, I don't know if you if you caught it, uh, called Ascent Abort Two, a test version of the Orion crew module, launched at seven a.m. EDT from Space Launch Complex at my favourite Cape Canaveral mm. in Florida on a modified peacekeeper procured through the U.S. Air Force and built by Northrop Grumman. 
Do you know these people, Matt? Weirdly, there was yeah. there was a the Northrop Grumman. <laughs> there was a uh, an outlet for Northrop Grumman just near Tolworth, where I lived last. Oh, really? It really was. My word. They're one of the, of course, biggest um, military contractors in the world. Part of the big military well, complex, but of course they make lots of things. But yeah, a Peacekeeper yeah. missile fired, yes, the Orion test capsule. Have you actually watched the footage of that? Because it, it looks pretty... Yeah, it's genius. It, it looks absolutely mental when it comes off. So, yeah, it, yeah, it's one step closer, I suppose, to having humankind back on the moon. This is it. But it did look pretty scary as it was, like, flailing around in the air and then sort of tumbled down into the sea because they didn't actually put any parachutes with it because they that's not what they were testing. No. So it was... It, it did look pretty scary. I would not want to be in the Orion capsule if it had to do one of those aborts. Me neither. But hey, it looked like it all went well. So was there anyone collecting data? I think there was a whole team collecting uh, data. There's, apparently there's 12 data recorders that were on board that Orion test capsule, the boilerplate version of it, so they've got to go into the sea and yeah. retrieve it. And then they'll see how successful it was, I suppose. Well, talking of success, have we got any FRB news? Fast radio burst news. It's my favourite type of news. We've talked about FRBs quite recently, and there seems to be a lot of movement on this because since we had it on the show, which was only a few episodes ago, um, astronomers have started to be able to trace one-off bursts, which has never been done before. So we, we talked about how they were able to trace these uh, repeaters uh, back to a couple of galaxies. Yes. So the, both repeaters, I, I believe, they've managed to trace them back to their host galaxies. But in the last That's week, right. two papers have come out, one in science by Bannister et al. and one in Nature by Ravi et al., uh, saying that they've actually managed to trace back a, a, a single burst back to the host galaxy. And there's a few surprises in here. Um, so Keith Bannister from the Australian Commonwealth yeah. Scientific and Industrial Research Organisation, or CICERO, he announced, he said, this is the big breakthrough that the field has been waiting for since astronomers discovered fast radio bursts in 2007. And absolutely, so FRB 1809-24, so that was one that was discovered on the 24th of September 2018. It looks like okay. it originated in the outskirts of a Milky Way-sized galaxy, roughly 3.6 billion light-years from Earth. So a very, very long way away. And that just shows that you how far. powerful these bursts are. Um, and it was picked up by the Australian Square Kil Kilometre Array Pathfinder, or ASCAP, not to be confused with the royalties collection people. ASCAP. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we grabbed and saved the I mean this is the this is the most amazing bit. Adam Della of Swinburne University of Technology said we grabbed and saved the last three seconds of data that had passed through the ASCAP dishes. About three billion measurements. <laughs> that what? let us do a live action replay of the three seconds over and over again, as many times as we needed to, by measuring the absolutely minuscule time delay between when the signal hit each of the 36 dishes. We're talking billionths of a second here. The team was able to triangulate the FRB's point of origin to two dimensions in space. I mean, that's just, just that is ridiculous, isn't it? And then they used Gemini Keck and VLT to uh, get that third dimension distance. So, yeah, they were able to pinpoint 
where it came from because they because it hit all these dishes and they could measure the time delay between those dishes. I mean, that's just ridiculous. Well, that has blown my kecks right off. <laughs> and then a week later, uh, it looks like on the, the uh, an FRB discovered on the 23rd of the 5th, 2019, so only really discovered very, very recently, 23rd of May, um, uh, was... Uh, pinpointed by Caltech's Owen Valley Radio Observatory, or OVRO. And this one is 7.9 billion light okay. years away. That's just silly. 7.9 billion light years away. Well, that I mean, that's ridiculous. And again, this uh, this galaxy is a bit like the Milky Way. And of course, that that is a bit frightening because all these talk of magnetars and stuff like that, uh, it yeah. probably wouldn't really happen in in such a mellow host galaxy looks like they're gonna to have to go back to the drawing board and start thinking of of new new explanations jamie new explanations a, but very exciting it's a hell of a drawing board very exciting isn't it very indeed, isn't it amazing word. that we're in 2019 we're still seeing new space phenomena that we have no idea what yeah. it is Oh, that is going to continue for a while. Let me tell you. Ah, oh, I just that makes the words of A. E. Douglas so more amazing. This is it. It's putting it into perspective. Isn't who it? knows what? Who knows by looking at these FRBs what bit of knowledge will go on to help us do? I just it's, it's brilliant. I love I love it. That's Jamie. what I'm I love looking it. forward to. I love it. It's just the expectation, isn't it? So should we talk about um Dragonfly? I think Matt? we should, shouldn't we? Because we talked about Dragonfly when we had our Titan special. Yes. Uh, we, Who could forget? Well, we only mentioned it very, very briefly when we were talking about some of the missions that NASA had planned to go to Titan. That's right. Including the the submarine. But yeah, I thought this one didn't even though it was one of the sort of final two things that probably might have made it to the New Frontiers program. New Frontiers, of course, Juno is part of the New Frontiers program as well. So these things happen and they're yeah. always incredible. New Horizons is another one. That's part of the New Frontiers program. And OSIRIS-REx as well, which is which is currently orbiting an asteroid, the Bennu. So that's pretty incredible, isn't it? Love Rex. So Dragonfly, yeah, is the next one. It's the next one, and Dragonfly, it's it. What a mission it is! So I wanted to do a little so bit. When's it going to launch? It, well, it's going to launch in twenty twenty six. Okay. So <laughs> annoyingly a long time away, seven year wait, uh, and will arrive in twenty thirty four, which a fifteen year wait. So we're going to be quite old, and well, the good news is, Jamie, I I got my results for me old. Um, I'll be fifty five, and you'll be what eighty three? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> I got my results for me old ticker, and she's, oh yeah, you're gonna, you're pretty much gonna live live forever. Yeah, it was really good. So I'm not gonna die, listeners. If you were on tenterhooks about what you know, I mean, it is good, but then you were going to give me all of your queen records, so I'm a little bit put out. Yeah, true, true. Sorry about that. We well, can have them That's anyway, okay, Jamie. Matt, I'm, uh, just out. Of I'm just kidding, Matt. Uh, we're all we're all really happy that you're in good health, and you'll be able to tell us about organic dunes and stuff like oh, that. Oh God, yeah. So, ah, oh, yeah. Well, wait till I tell you about organic dunes. There we go, Shangri La. So yeah, one of the places. There we go. So the four hundred and fifty kilogram dragonfly. That's the thing. This is this is yeah. this is like a quadcopter that's about ten feet long. It's one of those quite. Uh -huh. It's one of those quadcopters that's got uh, a blade on the top and a blade on the bottom. 
Oh, yeah. And although obviously that actually reduces the performance, it obviously gives it some level of redundancy, as in it can fly without if if some if one of them breaks, uh, it's unlikely that it it can carry on fly, flying basically. But when you see a quadcopter yes. without that arrangement, if one of them breaks, it it's game over. It goes spinning off and crashing off. So obviously you don't want that right. with a one billion pound piece of hardware. Um, but yeah, the, this thing almost half a ton, a quadcopter that weighs almost half a ton. Interestingly, Jamie. Uh, the first ever practical helicopter to fly in the USA in 1924 was a multi-rotor vehicle called the Flying Octopus. So not too dissimilar. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's going to land. When it lands, it's going to be in a kind of aero shell uh, when, it, when it's going through Titan's atmosphere. It's not as hard as landing on Mars because because of Titan Titan's atmosphere is so thick you've got a lot of you've got a lot of atmosphere to slow down through and and so your approach is nowhere near as critical as it is with Mars so that aspect of it even though incredibly difficult probably isn't as difficult as it will be on Mars so for something like curiosity um so that's that's okay. good news so that's good news but the craft will be upside down in its little shell as it as it plows through the atmosphere, and then yeah. using its own rotor power, it's going to sort of rotor down to the surface, and it's going to land. Its first landing spot is Shangri La, the organic Ooh. dunes of Shangri La. How exotic can you get? Yes, I mean, uh, and and one of the reasons is it's supposed to be a bit like some of the deserts on Earth. And if it is, then there should be plenty of really safe landing sites for the for the drone to land on. So that's 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 the impression I got anyway. That that's why they were doing it there. And plus, these places are really really interesting. But of course, they are. the brilliant thing about having a drone, and and this will be the first ever sort of flying laboratory that can go to different parts of a planet. Yeah. Is uh, is the fact that yeah you can you can land in the organic dunes one day, and then take off Tick. and land on an impact crater like Selk another day. Tick. And if you remember these impact craters, as we were saying on on the podcast before, this is where 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 an asteroid may have kicked up loads of water and the water and all these uh, Titan's organic. Um, really complicated organic materials have chance to mix for thousands of years and who knows what might happen in those in those prebiotic pools of water so that is genius yeah. you're so right and actually i mean of course rovers are cool but drones i mean how much quicker it looks like this drone should be able to fly about 108 miles which is nearly double the distance of all the mars rovers combined that is a stat. Yeah. Did we get a quote from um, Big Jim? From Big Jim, Bride of Frankenstein. Do you want to hear one? Go, go for it. You're going to do it. Are you going to attempt an accent or? Yeah, where's he from? Jim Bridenstine. I think he's from Michigan. Oh, I know Michigan. Here we go. You ready? Yeah. Visiting this mysterious ocean world could revolutionize what we know about life in the universe. This cutting-edge mission would have been unthinkable even just a few years ago. But we're now ready for Dragonfly's amazing flight. I actually thought that was Jim Bridenstine talking. I mean, turn that radio off. 
<laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Absolutely. Do you want a, a rundown of the payload, of the scientific payload? Yes, please. You've got DRAMS, D-R-A-M-S, okay. the Dragonfly Mass Spectrometer. Uh-huh. It can handle high molecular weight materials and samples yes. of prebiotic interest. So it can look at, obviously, yeah. large hydrocarbons, etc. And it's based on the highly successful SAM sample analysis at Mars that's on Curiosity uh, and also uses some of the things from ExoMars as well, the Mars Organic Material Analyzer. So it's a bit nice. of a hybrid of those ESA hybrid. and hybrid. Then you've got Dragons, the Dragonfly Gamma Ray and Neutron Spectrometer. Okay. Uh, that allows the elemental composition of the ground immediately under the lander to be determined without requiring any sampling operations. Uh, yeah, so it just blasts the ground with its own gamma rays using a pulse neutron generator and, and looks at the ground for uh, the abundance of carbon, nitrogen, hydrogen, and then sends that back and then ground control can sort of say, yeah, that that would be an interesting place to take a sample. Hell yeah. Uh, yeah. And then you've got DragMet, which is the Dragonfly Geophysics and Meteorolo Meteorological Package. <laughs> yeah, put your teeth in, granddad. Dragonfly Geo Geophysics and Meteorolo Meteorology. Oh, for God's sake, you say it. <laughs> you've got to keep that in. It's brilliant. <laughs> Meteor meteorological. Meteorolo meteorology. <laughs> meteorology package. There we go. Oh, that's uh, genius. That is um, downloadable as a ringtone for, for our patrons. Uh, <laughs> I'm tired of you. Right, uh -huh. no. Uh, then you've got Dragon Cam. This is what everyone, this is the one that everyone oh, wants. Here, this is what we're waiting for. Dragon, Dragon Cam. Cam. And I this mean, isn't from ooh. isn't from Game of Thrones or anything like no. that. So yeah, just a set of cameras all placed absolutely everywhere. So some facing forward, some facing back, some facing down, some of them UV, so they can see at night and, and look at fluorescence and all those sort of things. Beautiful. So yeah, a whole big imaging system. And of course, hopefully that's what will get the public interested rather than a few, you know, spreadsheets. Well, I'm bloody interested. Let me tell you that now. One thing that is really cool is the sample acquisition system. So things like the Viking lander had a kind of arm that went out and scooped stuff up, and, yeah. and Curiosity rover as well. But basically that's kind of completely impractical, too heavy, and has got yeah. a single point of failure. So what they're going to do on each of the landing skids they're going to have these like little drills with only one degree of freedom on them. Yeah. And so, yeah, if one breaks, you've still got the other one. And they're just True easy enough. to use. So they're just on the on the bottom of the skids. There's just these little drills. And, yeah, and because of the atmosphere being so dense, they're able to use like a sort of vacuum cleaner that's very similar to a Dyson vacuum cleaner. In other words, it uses this, that cyclone separator type thing to actually suck up the stuff that you're drilling and yeah. deliver it to the mass spectrometer. Oh, that is genius. That is actually really cool, isn't it? Very clever stuff. And, of course, the power, it's not going to be solar-powered because, as we know, we're a very, very long way away from yes. the sun. So... 
it's going to use a, a radio isotope or Ooh. what's known as the multi-mission radioisotope thermoelectric generator, the MMRTG, which is it exactly just rolls off the, tongue. the MMRTG, which is uh, exactly what it, uh, Curiosity has on board as well. Yeah. So they've got a little bit of data about how much that source decays and and so they they know a bit of how it works because it's going to be really important that this that this mission is well powered because it's got to beam back its data from Titan back to Earth and they want it to do it better than Huygens probe. So the Huygens probe is the last probe that visited Titan of course. Yeah. ESA's Huygens probe that was highly successful and and what an amazing probe that was but that returned about 100 megabytes of data so they want it to be in orders of magnitude better than that in fact 100 times better than that so they want to get back 10 gigabytes of data which means that if you're beaming that over 10 au you're going to need at least half a gigajoule of energy so that's 140,000 watt hours so you can't just use batteries so you're going to have to use one of these RTGs to actually Can't you just pop a couple it. of double A's in? No. Well, get this, the battery that's going to be on board this thing. I couldn't believe this. It's going to it, really, if you were to try and have a battery uh, where it sort of charged up overnight from the RTG, what you would like is to have a 14 kilowatt hour battery on board the um, craft but that would make it about a quarter of the size of a Tesla electric car battery, so i.e. 140 kilograms. It's ridiculous. <laughs> so, that, so that's, that's, that's too big. But it's still going to be a pretty massive battery on board. Yes, it would. Hmm. Well, but these aren't – yeah, sorry. I'm a patient man, Matt, but hmm. oh, 2034. I know. I know that's the only depressing thing about this. But, hey, it's but something come to look on, forward to, mission. isn't it? Yeah, what oh. a mission. Yeah, that is next lev. And talking of next, next lev, Matt, mm-hmm. we've got a shout out to give to someone, haven't we? We actually super have. Joanna super have. Jones. What did she yeah, write? A man, business leader, 15 star companies of the UK space sector. You won't believe what came in at number six. <laughs> <laughs> Click here to find out. Yeah. Oh, I love the fact that we're nestled in between Goon Hilly Earth Station and Ocean Mind. That is, it's just a massive, all seriousness, that's a massive, massive honour. And um, yeah, so thank you so much, Joanna. Uh, I think you should definitely send us your address so we can send you a swanky t-shirt and mug combo. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'd, I'd love to know so who So thank Joanna, you very much. And, yeah. and, and guess who retweeted it? I know, the UK Space Agency. Only the bloody UK Space and gave, Agency. And gave us a special is, mention. Is this real life? <laughs> yeah. I mean... That was, that's how we woke up this morning, wasn't it, Jamie? That, how that ace was that? hell of a way to wake up. That our little space rambles get, get this recognition is, is very special. And we want to thank our listeners, don't we? Yeah, I mean, come on, Jamie. We, we're, we're included amongst all these amazing companies doing insane things in space, like little no. robot spacecraft and an open cosmos and and, and there's us and, uh, and the there's Oxford us talking space about systems, reaction engines and and yeah. the interplanetary and then, podcast. And that then is there's the interplanetary hilarious. podcast talking about getting matching tattoos on their forehead. 
I mean, how did we do this? <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? But so, yeah, we're very chuffed. And um, we couldn't have done it without you guys and your support and telling other people and your reviews that you give us on iTunes. And of course, our legendary patrons who make this show happen. We couldn't do it without you. Absolutely. Um, so before we wrap up and tell you about Mr. David Whitehouse, mm-hmm. um, I think that we should tell you our website address. Yeah, yeah. It's www.interplanetary.org.uk. What, what would people find on their map? They will find the weekly blog that goes with the podcast. So any kind of yeah. links and pictures that you might want to look at. And, of course, links out to Instagram, Facebook, and all those kind of crazy places and Twitter. Yeah. And, uh, and links to Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, all the places you can listen. And all the regulars. All the regular stuff. And, uh, and most importantly, a link out to Patreon as well if you would like to, to have a little, snoo- little snooze, a little nose round Patreon and maybe little snooze. join the family. You. You will snooze at some yeah. point. Um, but, yeah, we absolutely love all our interactions we've been having. We do. We've had some great emails about space habitats, so we're putting oh, yeah. that space habitats uh, thing together. I, I, it, it's going to be absolutely brilliant. I had no idea what a big subject it was. Uh, but, yeah, I, can't, I really can't wait to start to start that but jamie do you know why people love this the interplanetary podcast it's because we have amazing guests like david whitehouse we do and david whitehouse is a former bbc science correspondent and he's written a a whole heap of books and he's even got an asteroid named after him so there you go but he he also yeah i mean he's a doctor david whitehouse got his degree from jodrell a phd from jodrell bank no less so yeah he's he's a uh, this is how his new book apollo is apollo 11 is described terrific and enthralling by new scientist an authoritative nice. account of apollo 11 by the observer and all about space called it the most authoritative book ever written about apollo what so wow shall we just get straight to this interview jamie well, I think we ought to. Ecoute. Roll it. The Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into space. Can you tell us and the listeners a little bit about your background and how you came to write Apollo 11, such an authoritative guide? Well, I've been interested in astronomy in space since I was about four years old. And this was the time of Mercury, Gemini and Apollo. Um, so I, I cannot think of a time when I wasn't. And it's it's um, been part of my personal and professional life ever since. But when I was a kid, I didn't realise you could actually be an astronomer or a space scientist. You know, I came from a, uh, a background where, um, you know, you looked up at the night sky and nobody else did. Mm-hmm. And people were more concerned with day-to-day cares. When I found out you could actually be an astronomer, <laughs> that was amazing. And I got my A-levels, went to Manchester University. Uh, and then I was fortunate to, to get to Jodrell Bank mm. to do a, a PhD in, in astrophysics. And this was the time of, um, when I was an undergraduate, it was the time of the development of the space shuttle, of Voyager, at uh, Jupiter and Saturn, a Viking on Mars. Yeah. And, and then when I got to Jodrell, I started meeting astronauts who'd come along and give talks. And, important people like that and I've kept a record ever since 
of who I've met, sometimes you know, on the back of a napkin, mm. sometimes on the back of a notepad. And then I went to work for the Mullard Space Science Laboratory at University College London. Uh, and then, I, I then after I left them, I, I did a bit of work for NASA. And then I became the BBC science correspondent working for radio. They, they had the idea. Uh, John Burt had this idea that um, rather than give science to a reporter who last month had done local government or the mm. Royal Beat, they'd actually give it to somebody who knew about science. Mm. And since I was all over the media in the 80s, um, because I was a talkative science lived near London, um, uh, John Burt's um, thoughts came towards me. Um, and it came out of the blue and initially turned the BBC down. Uh, but eventually they persuaded me on to be a science correspondent working for radio. And then, of course, you get to meet everybody. Yeah. You know, you get to... Uh, to meet um, uh, all the astronauts and you get to travel and you get to meet uh, flight directors and uh, mission controllers, uh, politicians, administrators of NASA. So, um, and then I was at BBC News Online before I started writing books and um, concentrated on writing books now. So when my agent said last year, are you going to write something about Apollo 11? And I said, well, isn't it too late? I said, surely everybody's has got their book a year beforehand, which they had. Mm. And she said, no, 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 come on, you can, you can write this. Just write it. <laughs> and there are two ways to write a book. One is um, you need the money up front. The other is, if you can, you just write it and then sell it. Mm. So I just wrote this thing. And I found all my old notes, boxes taped up in the loft, uh, cassettes, videos, Betamax. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> did you have a Betamax player, though? No. I had, to, I had to go and find somebody who didn't get them transferred. Wow. So I had, um, and reel-to-reel tapes, of course, when yeah. I was a radio journalist, reel-to-reel was it. Mm. Because um, you could edit with a razor blade and a bit of sticky tape. Um, so I got all this stuff, and then I, I found out what I had legal access to from NASA's archive. And NASA's archive is extensive, but it's very badly organised. You could spend a lifetime. For, I mean, for instance, they they have. Um, you're likely to find an envelope with sort of the number twenty six four oh nine on it or something, and you clue what's inside, and you open it, and it's something wonderful about Apollo because it's so. So I spent a long time, well, reasonable amount of time, um, getting to know the NASA archive as to what was available, and then I sat down and thought, well, to make this book different. And I thought, what's the point in writing another Apollo 11 book that's, that says they took off on such and such a date? Yeah. You know, <laughs> they went into this type of orbit. Um, they pressed the button to go to, to, to the moon, and they got to the moon at such and such a time. And the, you, know, you know what I yeah. mean? Yeah, yeah. No, you, know, you know, that type of thing. I wanted to write more personal uh, and more intimate, so I took the quotes that I'd got, preferentially the ones I'd got, but I uh, had others as well, and I tried to tell the story of Apollo through through the problems and through how people cope, coped with the problems and their achievements. And at the front of the book, I put on the prehistory because mm. I felt that you had to set it into context. Um, so that's the way I produced something I thought was fresh yeah. and different because, as, as, you say, as I said, what's the point in writing a book um, if it's just the same old thing? And fortunately, people like it and I'm thrilled to bits. Yeah. I mean, it's actually that's what you've just mentioned. One bit of the book that is really good is that is that that bit about the the Russians and what they were doing and the, and, the, mm. and that political tension. Uh, was that something you'd wanted to write about 
because that that is something you don't hear a lot, particularly in, when you're talking about Apollo. You don't really hear the kind of the Soviet side of it. Yes, well, it's such a fascinating story. I mean, I, I started with Tsiolkovsky, but there's not much known about Tsiolkovsky apart from the uh, equations he came up with <laughs> yeah. to, um, you know, how do you stage a rocket? Mm. What are the relationship between the various stages? How do you calculate the velocity you should... He, he came up with all that over 100 years ago. Mm. Brilliant set of equations. And then, of course, come the two central figures, um, von Braun and Sergei Korolev, and their story of how von Braun was involved with the Nazis and Korolev was involved in the purges and the concentration camps and how they both survived the war but were scarred by it. And then how von Braun went to America at White Sands and he didn't do anything for 10 years, practically. Mm. He was developing rockets, he was improving the V2, but the government hadn't really gotten... having had all this um, fuss about getting the V2 secrets out of Germany as the biggest spoils of mm. World War II... They didn't really know what to do with him. And there was an interesting parallel with him and Sergei Korolev because both could have launched a satellite before Sputnik, mm. years before Sputnik, but neither governments were interested. They just said, no, it's, 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 it's rockets we want to deliver nuclear bombs over intercontinental distances. Mm. That's what we were not interested in. Anything else, just get on with that. And it was the way our, both of them actually overcame this this problem is I think one of the most fascinating stories in the history of space flight up to up to when Kennedy became president because um, Korolev um, got um, permission from Khrushchev he tried to get it from Stalin mm. Stalin was a bit wary but when Khrushchev came along Khrushchev said yeah you can launch a satellite but don't interfere with the missiles so he went so he worked ahead um, and then he launched Sputnik, which oh. changed the whole world. Von Braun could have launched a satellite with um, with his rockets years before. In fact, there's a strange story in the book that um, the American military were worried he was going to do that um, because he, he had a rocket capable with a, a simple third stage you could have put on, and he had a mock-up satellite in his truck. <laughs> And they actually sent some minders down to keep an eye on him in case he accidentally, on purpose, launched a satellite. Um, so it's a fascinating sort of yeah. prelude to why Apollo was there, which I felt, um, I felt because there were so many interconnections and, and, and misunderstood, Eisenhower is very misunderstood, uh, when he's in his reaction to Sputnik, that I wanted to sort of set the, set the, that was the reason why Apollo happened in the first place. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. I mean, with Sputnik, it's a funny one, isn't it? Because you you kind of get the impression when you read stories around that era, and you, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but that when when the Soviet Union launched Sputnik, they didn't kind of realised what a big news story mm. it was and actually took some catching up of, oh, crikey, we've, we've, got, a, we've got a real win here. That's right. I mean, um, uh, Sergei Korolev and his team had launched Sputnik and they had to wait a while sitting in a, um, a radio van that's made out of a, a railway carriage, I think, <laughs> and they had to wait to be sure it was in orbit to hear the beep, beep, beep as it came over for the next orbit. Then somebody phoned the contact in Moscow, and then they phoned um, Khrushchev. 
And Khrushchev answered the phone and said, oh, did they? Oh, didn't think it would work. He went back to bed. It was... Uh, and yet, when they were flying back from Baikonur up to um, to, to Moscow, they realised that the whole world was talking about this. Mm. America was shocked, high heaven. You know, there were people being interviewed in Times Square saying, we fear this. Uh, our government has fallen down on the job. How come the Soviet Union, who we thought was backward, is sending this beep, beep, beep over our head, you know, five times a day? Yeah. And that was a Shock of the century. Well, yeah, but that's. I mean, so on the lead, on the lead up to that, that so the Americans were Americans talking about satellites, or was it just suddenly, oh my God, there's a satellite? No, they were talking about satellites, but they they said that they were they were going to launch one in the International Geophysical Year. Ah, It was it was no big deal. It was um, scientific. Um, But when it flew over America, Sputnik and BBB, it shocked them. Uh, and also, misunderstand was Eisenhower. Eisenhower didn't seem very much bothered, while the whole media was going totally mad, um, because Eisenhower, and this is this is little appreciated, Eisenhower wasn't really a politician. He was a soldier, and he knew that if America had launched a satellite first and it overflew the Soviet Union as it must, then there could have been trouble. Hmm. The Soviet Union could have said, "You're invading our space." And um, he was interested in satellites to survey the Soviet Union to see what they were up to militarily. So there's in a sense that he didn't mind Sputnik going up first because it set the precedent. And then his spy satellites Mm. and his spy planes could then overfly the Soviet Union and they didn't have a legal leg to complain about. Very, very clever trick, well, but of course... That's super canny, isn't it? It is, but he paid the price for it in the polls right. because no, nobody thought that he was dealing with the situation properly. And of course, by 1960, the Americans sat down. NASA had been formed two years earlier and they'd chosen some astronauts for Mercury. And they sat down before they'd even announced the Gemini follow-on project to Mercury. And they said, look... We lost the satellite race. We're probably going to lose the first man in space race, although they shouldn't have done. Um, what can we beat the Russians on? What can we do? And they said, well, if we work at it, we can beat them to the moon. And that was the origin of Apollo, beating the Russians to the moon. It was only later, when Kennedy became president, that, of course, he picked it up and associated himself with it. Yeah. And... and- and a little way into the projects, started wavering. Oh, they they had... Because how do you get to the moon? It's pretty First difficult, all, isn't it? How, how, what type of rocket do you need? What type of... Um, how big does the rocket have to be? How do you go to the moon? What orbits do you use? What... Sorry. What, how, how big a rocket do you need to go to the moon? What orbits do you use? What do you send to the moon? What do you bring back? Uh, nobody knew these things. How do you manage a project like that? Von Braun, had, Von Braun was big in thought. He had big rockets, big space stations, big spacecraft to go to the moon. And he was completely wrong except for the big rocket. Mm. You needed a big rocket, but everything else had to be as small as possible. And so they bashed away at that in the early 1960s. Uh, and they came up with what I think was a tremendous design. But bringing the whole project together... Um, proved to be beyond them at, at that moment. And uh, remember, as well as building the big rockets um, in Alabama, the mission control in Houston, 
the world's largest construction site for a while in Cape Canaveral. How much concrete did they pour to create those vast structures? And organizing that, you know, after a few years, it was in trouble. Mm. And they brought in a lot of people from the military who had vast experience at a very run project called Polaris. And so that got them back on the right track again until, of course, Apollo 1 mm. and three astronauts died. And it's a, it's a fascinating story of, you know, people think the landing, we're celebrating it now, but everything else that went up to the landing, and nobody knew anything when they started it. Yeah. And it's amazing they did it. Yeah, well, I, I, heard, I heard someone talking the other day on, on another podcast, actually, about how a lot of the sort of senior people at NASA thought that this thing was going to be impossible by the end of the decade. So a lot of the people that they brought in as flight controllers and, and mission control were all these really, really young people, their average age of 21 when they started. It's just, and, and it was because they thought, oh, it's not really possible. But these sort of super young people had this kind of attitude of, yeah, we, we, you know, they had that youthful enthusiasm. Is that, is that something that you've come across in, the, in, in...? Well, I've spoken to a lot, of, a lot of the people who made it work. Of course, you concentrate on the astronauts yeah. and the politicians and the administrators. Um, and the managers. But, um, yes, there was, particularly in the Manned Space Flight Centre, mm-hmm. as it was, uh, there was a lot of young people. Um, they were invariably American and Canadian, some Canadians, um, and they were very enthusiastic. And I get the impression, from when, when I spoke to Gene Kranz many years mm-hmm. ago, that they didn't know what they wanted to do at first. They knew they were in charge of the mission, they were analysing, they were running through the plan and the programme. They spent 20% of their time uh, rehearsing when it went right and the rest of the time trying to work out what to do when it went wrong. Uh, but it was only with the problems they encountered with with Gemini, possibly with John Glenn as well, mm. you know, when his heat shield mm. threatened to fall mm. off. And there were, Gene said there were... Uh, blood-drained faces around mission control when they realised his life was in danger. I think with some of the early Gemini, they realised they had to interrogate the spacecraft at a much greater level. They needed more and more information about what the spacecraft and the rocket were doing than they had. And that was then built into Apollo. So when you see the movie or the real thing and they're all sitting at their desks and the the flight director is, is up at the top there and they're all looking at these black and white numbers... They needed that. They needed every bit of information from inside of the rocket to work out what was going on. Of course, very, very true in Apollo 13, mm, yes. when they really did need everything they can to work out what was what was going on. So you had the... I was fascinated by the the people who were controlling this and the mathematicians who were uh, analysing in real time the trajectories... Um, and remember, the Apollo guidance computer was a revolution in computing. Mm. Um, it was handmade, uh, but it was its architecture and its design and its reliability were, were at state of the art at the time. And that, 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 that's an impressive machine and, and the whole technology, because it's not like these days. Anywhere these days, what you face is a screen mm. and a keyboard. Those days, they didn't have that so much. You had to have 500 switches in the command module for Apollo, 
And each switch did something connected to a valve or, or um, a pump or whatever it is, or an electrical circuit. And so when things went wrong, you intervened where it went wrong, not tweaked a program three layers away, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, absolutely. And that, and that was, that was, the, that, was the, um, that and the backup was one of the key element. And I tried, to put, I tried to put that in the book during the Gemini missions because a lot went wrong in the Gemini mm. missions. And they were very lucky not people didn't get killed. And that, uh, and that when they knew that uh, they were lucky, they had to build in more um, systems. This is where uh, Krantz said, from now on, we have to be tough and competent um, because we need to know exactly what's going on. And that was just after the Apollo 1 mm. fire which was a bit of complacency that they'd gotten away with, with Gemini. Mm. There's a great uh, quote in the book by Wally Schirrer about Apollo 1 fire, and he said they shouldn't have done it. Um, it was too soon, it was too quick, people were blasé, they were working too quickly, they weren't looking at the figures in front of them. Uh, the astronauts were frustrated. Uh, Gus Grissom told John Young that um, the Apollo capsule wasn't up to it. It was, a, it, was, it was a bad capsule, badly designed. It had a lot of flaws. But he didn't want to escalate that argument up to a higher level because he might annoy people and lose his place uh, on the Apollo moonwalking mm. slots. And in fact, um, I think Deke Slayton as well wanted Gus Grissom to be the first person to walk on the moon. Um, and because he didn't create a fuss, and according to Wally Shira, was uh, was also had this go fever was the reason they had that yeah. big accident and that changed everything yeah yeah that's a, it's it's certainly a, it's certainly a turning point do you think yeah. do you think that do you think those conversations with John Young because John Young got very much into the sort of health, health and safety elements of of the uh, yeah well, uh, well particularly when he was in the shuttle yes he was often called the conscience of the <laughs> astronaut's office uh, yes well he on a slightly different note i mean yeah. John Young and Bob Crippen flew the most dangerous flight in the history of space flight. Yeah, I mean, that, first flight of the shuttle. Yeah, it's I mean, crazy. It's, it is, you're, you're quite yeah, right. Yeah. So looking back at it now, it is astounding they got away with it. Yeah. Yeah, it was all cracks everywhere. <laughs> well, I mean, it's such, yeah. it's such a complicated machine. Yeah. And to fly it for the first time in such a way they did is, you just think, wow, it's just. Yeah. We wouldn't do that today. No, no, absolutely. Not. And therein lies the reason, perhaps, why we're not back at the moon. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, you were saying obviously that that element of people rushing to do jobs, and because there's a rush on. What do you think? What What are your thoughts now when you've got uh, when you've got Mike Pence and Trump pushing for a, a Luna Twenty Four mission? Well, there's no reason why we can't go back to the moon quicker than we think. Mm. We've got lots of components ready. We've got the commercial components, SpaceX and, and uh, Jeff Bezos and others. Uh, the Americans cannily kept hold of the space launch system, which, although imperfect and sometimes seems to uh, not have a role, um, is a useful thing to have. And one could argue about whether the Lunar Gateway is useful because people say that the, 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 the action's down on the surface, not in the orbit of the moon. But um, if, if we had more of that spirit, we could move it quicker. But you see, the thing is about Apollo is that it happened because 
several things came together which don't come together today. First of all, you had America was rich, was developing a lot of brilliant technology in the 60s, computer technology, manufacturing systems, even down to welding systems it was developing. Um, it had a political enemy in the Russians, and they were both doing the same thing. Mm. So it was important after Sputnik that um, that, um, that they carry on doing that. They had It was the legacy of a martyred president who was assassinated while he was at the height of his support for, for Apollo. Uh, and you had a public which was on side and willing to spend 4% of the Russian national project on Apollo. Mm. But actually, I say they were on side. I mean, when Armstrong went to the moon, only 45%. I thought it was a good idea. But the fact is that the politicians were persuaded to spend that amount of money and then try and justify it to the, to the populace, uh, which they did for so many years, and then it obviously didn't work after that. Now, those conditions aren't here today. It's much more difficult, I think, to do something like that when everybody's cooperating with each other. Mm. Um, and also, things are more transparent today in terms of in terms of the money. I mean, Bridenstine recently asked for, is it 10 billion as a down payment? Um, it's a lot of money and people will argue about it. I mean, there's a great, um, it's in the book, um, and I think you can go and listen to the tape now, mm. uh, of, of, of uh, Jim Webb uh, talking to President Kennedy in a meeting in the White House. Um, Webber, I think, it's, I think it's true to say, I'm just get my figures right here, it's true to say that he wanted to know how much Apollo would cost. And I think Jim was told three billion, a big underestimate, uh, but to ask for five. He goes in and asks for ten. <laughs> <laughs> and then he has an argument with the president because he thinks he's going to be able to do everything with this ten, not just Apollo, everything else he wants to do, unmanned probes, space stations, development of um, single stage, of reusable rockets. Mm. Um, but no, Kennedy said, no, Apollo, Apollo, Apollo. And... Um, Kennedy has to keep bringing Jim Webb back, saying, no, this is the focus. You know, you think you can do everything with this? No, you're doing Apollo with this. Um, and um, then LBJ, who was the best space president, I think, ever, just wonderful, uh, took this on and pushed it through. And it was sad that it wasn't LBJ who talked to the astronauts you know, on the moon. It was Richard Nixon, mm. who didn't really have much to, uh, to do <laughs> to with that. Yeah. So, so... Apollo times were special. We may get back to the moon, whether by 2024 or whatever, but it will it will not be like Apollo. Those days are unique and those days are gone. And I think the more we look at the Apollo decade, if you like, as it recedes, the more amazing it is. And another thing which fascinated me is I call the last chapter of the book the melancholy of all things done. Mm. What do you do afterwards? And it's interesting to see these old men now, with only four moonwalkers left, looking back on this anniversary of their lives when they were fit, young, healthy, doing these godlike things. And there's a lesson there. I can't quite put my finger on it, but there's a lesson there for all of us. Yeah, there's, there's, there, there is something depressing about Apollo in, in the fact that it, it, it seems such an enormous leap that we're continually in the shadow of it. That, that you, it's, it's very hard to come up to think of anything that has that 
uh, a kind of epic quality to it. You it was, you're quite right. That's a very perceptive comment because you're right. It was more than just a trip to the moon mm. in the sense that the moon has been with us since, since longer than we have. The First Nation um, inhabitants of North America had a phrase saying, no moon, no man. You know, it's been with us as we evolved. And it's been part of our ancient psyche in the sense that Stonehenge is to do with the moon. The moon, the Greeks and before, ancient Greeks and before that knew that the moon had a connection to the human fertility cycle. They even thought that when the moon was eclipsed uh, and turned red, that that was the blood of the Great Mother's wisdom and giving the gift of fertility back to the earth. Mm. Um, ancient Greek senators wore little crescents on their sandals to show that they were going to the moon on their way to heaven. So it's, it's in there in our blood. Mm. You cannot say that the moon is um, a world of such a size, of such a dimensions with so many craters made of this, it's in that orbit. You'll never know the true moon. You can't strip it of its myth and mystery if you only describe it by mm. science. It's, it's been there all the time. And so the voyage was not just a technological voyage in the 60s using rockets. It was more mythological. Mm. It was more deeper than that. Um, the ancient Greeks used to have three words for the moon. Um, Selene, Artemis, and Hecate. Hecate was when the moon was, was um, waning. And then that was the time as it, it was at its most mysterious. And Hecate means influence from afar. And that's what the moon has always had on us. It's had a, an influence you could almost not quite put your finger on. It's as strange as madness. Um, the moon has had that hold on us. And in the 60s, we merged that myth, that ancient um, feeling about the moon, with the technology of the 60s, with the computers and the rockets. So you're quite right. The further we get away from the rockets and the technology, the myth still remains that people did it. Mm. Modern-day Jasons and modern-day Argos yeah. did it. And that's going to be fascinating in 200 years' time when there's nobody around. Yeah. You know, that mythological journey will be, I think, grow stronger as, as we forget about, you know, the number of... Yeah. switches on the Apollo module yeah. and the, the computer. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's when, when Neil Armstrong died, I, the one thought that I had is that he really, out of anyone that you could think of, like you think of the most famous person ever, you think of Michael Jackson or something like that, and, and you think, actually, Neil Armstrong's the only person with this bizarre... It, um, it's unfortunate for Buzz because it would be better if they shared it because they did land on the moon at the same time. But I think Neil Armstrong has this this kind of iconic thing that he will always be the first person, like you said, that 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 that, that has stepped on the moon, yeah. and therefore, so so he's he can, you can that can never change. He'll he'll his his place in history is yeah. cemented more than any other human being I can think of. Only twenty percent of people alive today witness that. They all the youngsters today think Michael Jackson invented the moonwalk. <laughs> um, <laughs> But you're, you're quite right. There's a section in the book about the first footprint. And there's a very interesting time in the end of 68, 69, when it seemed likely that Apollo 11 would be doing the first landing. 
And I think they announced it in early January that Apollo 11 was going to try the first landing. And the first press conference, I think, was a day or two later. And the first question everybody asked, who's going to be the first on the moon? This is a fascinating episode because Buzz Aldrin had been told by some officials and by some journalists that he was going to be the first person to walk on the moon on the basis that Ed White did the first spacewalk, but he wasn't commander of the mission, Mm. on the basis that when the Enterprise arrives at a new world, Picard stays on the bridge and Riker does the away mission, you know, the commander on the bridge. Um, And he was allowed to indulge that for a while. But uh, eventually, I think NASA decided they didn't want him to do this. And Armstrong was one for avoiding an argument. He would go out of his way to avoid a confrontation. Um, And... He came to a head, I think, and Armstrong said, no, I'm going to do it. Because he, because he, Aldrin was getting up the nose of all the astronauts by lobbying behind, you know, lobbying in private. And this was seen as bad taste. And he said he did it for the, as any enthusiastic, pushy Navy mm. um, pilot would do um, in order to be first, because the force had to be first. Armstrong was a civilian. Mm. But no, they, they, gave it, they gave it to Armstrong, and rightly so, because Armstrong bore it with humility, whereas Aldrin would have become Captain America. Hmm. And Michael Collins said to me once, he said, uh, Buzz Aldrin, in his frustration and his annoyance that he wasn't the first person to walk on the moon, forgot to be grateful that he was the second person to walk on the moon. So, but but (sighs) it's fascinating because they all... How do you get over this? It was an interesting... At the time, it was said that Armstrong and Aldrin were going to a place we could never follow and they would be forever strangers. And and they were. And um, Gene Cernan at Armstrong's funeral said that um, the people who walked on the moon broke the familiar matrix of life and couldn't put it back together. And there was a real sense of that, particularly for Armstrong. Yeah. You know, he was a... He, I think he became quite a lonely person. He was very difficult to talk to. I mean, I spoke to him many times. And initially he was very against journalists, if journalists didn't know him. Mm. Fortunately, I was a scientist who turned into a journalist, and I met him when I was a scientist. Uh, but he was still very reticent and, um, and didn't like the feature. If you got him talking about an engineering system or some engineering fact of the mission, love it. But if you asked him... You know, the question they've all totally fed up about is what was it like to work on the moon? I mean, for heaven's sake. They've been asked that hundreds of thousands of times for 50 years. And how how do you answer it anyway? Yeah, exactly. They're totally fed up of that. But once you you got over that, you you could talk to him and um, he was still very reticent and and still found, 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 I think he had many problems. I remember once at a meeting, um, he came across and said, David, how are you? And I thought, what? The first man on the moon has remembered. (laughs) But interestingly, actually, you can go on YouTube and see this. Um, When he came back from the moon, he went on a tour with Bob Hope to entertain the troops in Vietnam. And it's wonderful. It's a wonderful thing to see on YouTube because he's happy, he's relaxed, he's amongst his own. The the, 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 um, soldiers... Love him. 
And there are times when he walks onto the stage and he can't talk for 10 minutes because they're all shaking his hands and clapping. And he says, um, this is the best reception I've ever had and you clearly loved it. And he told a wonderful joke. He was, he was one for jokes. There was the famous parrot joke, I'll tell you. But there was also... Um, um, I the joke John Cleese. <laughs> <laughs> Before that, he said, um, somebody asked him if he got paid extra to go to the moon. He said, yeah, I did. I got paid extra. But from the bill, from the extra, they subtracted 30% because government accommodation was available. <laughs> they took off 25% because government food was available. He said, and when you added it up, the extra he got to go to the moon and come back was $42. <laughs> But his parrot joke, I'll tell you his parrot joke, he was also self-deprecating about his speech. He gave great speeches. Uh, but it wasn't easy, and he once stood up and said that one of the Wright brothers had said that the only bird that can fly and talk is a parrot. And he don't fly very well. <laughs> Obviously, making the point that um, Armstrong flew brilliantly. But he was uneasy with all this. Uh, he came out... When, um, when he was required to at state occasions, at anniversaries. And for many years, he signed letters to Cub Scouts. Um, but slowly they stopped. Slowly he wasn't as free with autographs and as free with his time. And then he got divorced, of course, mm. which was a crisis for him. So you got, you got the impression that he was a genuine, wonderful, introverted, brilliant man but you also got the impression he had paid a price mm. for what he'd done. Do, when you saw the film, I don't know if you've seen the Did you see the film First Man? Yeah, I've seen it, yes. What did, what did you think of that portrayal? Did it, did it, ring, did it ring true? Because the vibe of what you're saying there rings a little bit true in that film. But I, it, I, I, don't think it made, I don't think it was as miserable <laughs> as, um, as the film made out. But, of course, um, I knew him in certain social occasions, yeah. in certain, certain ways. Um, I knew other astronauts much, much more than, than Neil, but it seemed a bit of a miserable film to me at times. <laughs> um, it, was a, it was a little bit. Yeah, but, but then again, and I heard, I, heard, I heard very recently that some one of his sons, I think, did a tour of, of Britain recently, mm. uh, was asked, were you ever worried your dad wasn't going to come back, which is a big thing in the film. Mm, yeah. He said, no, he said, if he'd got into trouble, we'd reckon he'd sort it out. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. You guys on the moon. And he, if he gets into trouble, they'll sort it out. Yeah, well, um, if anyone was going to, it's going to be Neil Armstrong. I think, I think that's, I mean, after his Gemini 8, I think everybody knew. And that's the thing that impresses me about astronauts, mm. is that their camaraderie and their trust. You know, that's a scene in Apollo 13. I know they're not astronauts, mm. but they got the gist of it. When... Um, the crew of Apollo 30 are in trouble and they need to work out how to switch everything on for the re-entry. Mm. And um, Gene says, it's all right, um, Jim. Uh, Ken's in the simulator doing it. And the three crew, um, Schwagert, Hayes and Lovell, look at each other. And there's a, there's, a, there's a look of them of confidence and, well, that's all right then. Yeah. We're, we're, we're good. We're safe because one of ours, whom we trust... Mm. Is working on it. And there was definitely a case of that. You can also see this on YouTube. There's um, um, a speech given by Armstrong. There are loads of speeches by Armstrong on YouTube, and they're wonderful, where he says, President of the Engineering Society, 
ladies and gentlemen. And then he looks to the back of the hall and he says, fellow astronauts. And he pauses. And the look on his face when he says, fellow astronauts. Mm. Because he knew he was lucky to be the first man on the moon. It could have been, I think Borman was in line for it uh, on Apollo 8, but he decided not to go up again. Um, Gus Grissom was certainly a contender. It could have been anybody. I mean, Stafford was, was probably more qualified, but it was Neil. Mm. And he said this fellow astronauts, because he knew that he was one of a crew and that it could have been anybody. Mm. And I think we were fortunate that uh, it was Neil Armstrong because um, he, although he did pay, pay the price, I think what he did when he got back from the moon was, was admirable. Yeah. Admirable. He certainly, yeah, he certainly, he didn't milk it for everything you That's could right. do. Could well, you? I mean, it's the... you, ex exactly, but... The thing which amazed me is that NASA had no plans for these guys. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. They got back from they got back from the moon, and they were if they weren't um, slated for another mission, which most of them weren't, because the politics were horrendous of astronaut selection, and that everybody wanted to get on flight, particularly when the last three had been cancelled. Um, um, they had no media advisory they had no secretary no proper secretaries they had no no money you know when they come back buzz aldring is uh, doing adverts for volkswagen cars um Werner von braun goes to work for a helicopter company um neil armstrong wants to be a university professor but can't because he can't <laughs> you know he gives a lecture and the outside in the corridor it's packed yeah um, he can't do it. Armstrong once said, this will kill you, that he could never write a cheque because the value of the cheque with his signature was always greater than what he was buying. <laughs> so he couldn't come back to a normal life. Aldrin had trouble with drink. Um, Charlie Duke um, nearly got divorced. A lot of them did get divorced. Uh, NASA had no means to handle these people. So it was amazing to, to find out that a lot of these people had walked on the moon when they came back, were broke. That's why, remember Dave Scott on Apollo 15 mm. franked those letters, yeah. hoping to flog them when he got back. Yeah. That was because he knew that when he'd been to the moon, he wasn't going back, he'd be leaving NASA, and he wanted some money. They had no extra money. Mm. They had no publicity agents, you know. This was like football in the 1960s, you know, 15 quid a week, you know, and you, yeah. that's, you did everything. And when you stopped, you stopped. Well, a lot of them were mili military as well, so presumably yeah. on military. Exactly. They were on, yeah, yeah, they were on um, standard rates. They didn't. They got paid a little extra, but not much. And and then they're left to cope with their lives in a media that is changing in the nineteen seventies mm. uh, the best they can. And no wonder, no wonder they some of them went off the rails and, and found it difficult. I mean, look at people who thrust into the spotlight these days. You know. There's a whole industry of celebrity watching, um, watching them go up and down. Yeah. It, it, it well, must have been really tough for them. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's played out multiple times, isn't it? In the, like you said, in that celebrity and rock star thing that, you know, we've seen it time and time again with people not being able to cope with that yes, I mean, heady rise. That's right. Um, but Aldrin uh, is an interesting case because he, um, he clearly found it very, very difficult uh, until he married Lois. And the impression I got is that Lois completely sorted him out financially. Because I remember 
you used to be able to call Buzz's office and get through to him as a journalist quite easily. When he married Lewis and they were more organised, you couldn't get through. Mm. You know, you had to negotiate. Um, um, so I think she helped sort him out that way. And, and now he talks about the business of Buzz, mm. which some people like, some people don't. But, you know, he's got to make a living. Yeah. You know, as everybody has. Yeah. Yeah, it's been, it's been a bit tough. Is there any... Because you've got lots and lots and lots and lots of different interviews from lots of different people. Is there, is there any interview that you've found in your this repository of interviews that you've that you've gathered over the years that, when you found it again and read through, you thought, "Wow, I hadn't realised what a gem I'd got here." There's one that sticks to mind, and it was a recorded interview, and I only used a couple of clips from it, and that was with Alan Shepherd. Um, it was in his hotel room in Edinburgh. He'd actually come across to a Scottish rocketry event. <laughs> They'd built models of the Redstone and, and stuff like that, and he came across to see it, incredibly nice guy. Um, and I recorded an interview. He was in his dressing gown, <laughs> in, in, his, in, his, uh, in his suite at this posh Edinburgh hotel. And um, I'd met him a couple of times before, but not very much. And then, you know, when you talk to an astronaut, they give you the same spiel that they've given 50, 100 times. You know, you get the same story. And you don't want that. Uh, you want to go a little bit deeper. And slowly we got talking a bit deeper and he realised that I knew what I was talking about. So we had a fascinating discussion. And I'm sure I'll write about this separately because I only used a couple of clips from him about how um, it should have been him and not Gagarin who uh, got into space first. Uh, and was only stopped by a government inspection. I said to him, when, when you're asleep at night or you're going to sleep and you close your eyes, are you back on the moon? And he paused a bit and he said, oh, yes. He said, when I, when I close my eyes, there's that time when I can still remember the, 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 the peculiar smell of the air in the spacesuit. He can still see the grey stains on his legs from the lunar dust. And he can still see the um, earth in the sky and putting his thumb over it. He said, and every time I do, I cry. I thought, yeah. I thought these astronauts, they're not. They're not space jocks. Yeah. They don't lack poetry or imagination. They're, they are among the most fascinating people I've ever met. Yeah. Oh yeah, well, they're, they're definitely. Have you met? What do you think of astronauts? What do you? Oh well, I mean, well, it, what's quite, and this will be interesting actually. Do you think like modern astronauts? Obviously, I've, we've met, I've met quite a lot of the British ones. Yeah. Uh, actually, I've, I've met Al Warden, who's yeah, yeah. he's 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 great. What well, he's good fun as well, but he seems very different from say someone like Tim Peake or Mike Fole, who seems to be right. cut from a completely different cloth altogether. Quite right. I, I um, knew a great many shuttle astronauts in the 80s and 90s, loads of them, and um, they're all very nice people. But they had a, an, a respect for what they called the gods of Apollo. Mm. Um, and you could almost say that since the shuttle came, since after the first few flights of the shuttle, we now have space workers, people who work in space, mm. Um, the gods of Apollo were, were gods. They were doing things which nobody had done before, which were 
more dangerous than they or we appreciate probably even today, uh, which achieved remarkable feats of courage uh, and performance. And you're right, they are a different breed. Even when we go back to the moon, the 13th person to walk on the moon, which hopefully will happen in the next you know, five or ten years, will be a different type of astronaut from mm. the gods of Apollo. We'll never see their like again. No. Well, quite likely to be a woman as well, by the by the sounds of things as well. Well, I hope so. Which would be, I hope which so. Which would be great, but, but it's... Yeah, I mean, it, 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 I, I don't know what the selection process were for these guys, but they were, <laughs> but they, they were obviously... It was chaotic. <laughs> Basically... I mean, that's a good question because nobody knew what an astronaut was. Mm. I mean, NASA sat down. I think the Russians did this in a similar way. And they thought, right, who can be an astronaut? They thought high-altitude climbers, mm. you know, able to survive in uh, harsh conditions with low oxygen. Um, and then they came up with jet pilots, high-tech machines, fast speeds, high-altitudes, um, enclosed spaces, and so they went down the jet pilot pilot route. And John Glenn describes, I give, give him a quote in the book, saying that um, they didn't know how to test astronauts. They weren't sure that the first astronauts who went up would survive. Mm. So he said they probed every orifice, you know, deeply, and uh, he said with malicious intent in many respects. He said they went through all these tests, which they were virtually making up in some respects, only to realise after a few flights that they didn't need those tests. And that actually to be an astronaut, you don't need to be super fit. You just need to be fit. Mm. We know that from the shuttle programme now. But in the early Mercury days, they didn't know what they'd expect. They didn't know what the effect on people were. So they had to cover everything when medicine was a lot cruder. And um, I think that, you know what? What they had, what the first Mercury crew collection had to put up with, no other astronauts that followed had to put up with that type of thing. But certainly, certainly, um, going into space um, in those days involved not only being fit but mentally. Hmm. I imagine this. Have you you've seen the? Um, it's the Apollo Ten command module in London, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Yes. Um, Imagine, I sometimes imagine when I see that, sitting inside it, sealed up, and you're there for six days. Six days. And not only that, but you're a quarter of a million miles from Earth. And you have to spend three days going between the Earth and the moon in that capsule. I think, the, and you see film of, um, particularly of Apollo 11, they're relaxing, they're looking at their notes, they're listening to a bit of music. The mentality to put out of your mind the fact you're in great danger at that mm. time is uh, is impressive. It, that's an interesting point because presumably every I mean you hear that that the quote that I hear is that a lot of the like the flight controllers kind of put it down as 50-50 whether Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong would come back from that first mm. moon landing and and with those with that level of uh, risk. How do you think that psychologically affects all the sort of team members you've got, or your Gene Crantz's team, and you've got the astronauts, and you've got you know thousands of other people working with with really the running the risk of losing for a lot of them two really good friends. Do, do you think that that had a, a long term 
because clearly that's not sustainable in a you know we wouldn't even think about doing that in the modern world i don't think in, in, in well um it's an interesting story that um a few days before apollo 11 left off thomas Paine, the new administrator of nasa um, after webb left had them to it's a breakfast or dinner but they had them for a meal hmm. and said look if you guys don't make it this time we'll send you straight back and you can try again and I don't think the Apollo 11 crew took that seriously because I'm damn sure that the Apollo 12 crew would have had something to say about that. Yeah. But it was it was a, an interesting gesture. And I think the impression I get, just sticking to Apollo 11, is that the pressure on Collins, even though he didn't have to land on the moon, was more considerable than he was given, given credit for. Because had... Um, had they crashed land, landing, had they even landed and couldn't take off again, yeah. um, Michael Collins would have been told, come back on his own. And can you imagine the mental discipline mm. and what that would do to your mind to leave um, your crewmates still alive on the lunar surface and come back? I mean, that, that makes, you know... Um, um, well, it's, it's very similar to mountaineering films, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> or, 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 yeah, Scott of the Antarctic. Yeah, it makes kind of, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's it makes, often travellers and explorers don't do that sort of thing. Yeah. It's not in your blood, is it? It makes Mark Watney's living in yeah. a in a paradise. Yeah, you know, because the um, consumables on on board the lunar module, the Eagle, um, they were supposed to stay there for just over a day, and you only had a few hours extra. Because what's the point? You needed the craft to be as light as possible. So I think the pressure with that was great. And also also Apollo 9, um, which was the big shakedown flight, and which, which is an underappreciated flight because uh, everything depended upon this working. It was the first test of the lunar module um, docking with the command module. And... Um, I forget who it was, but the, the astronaut who got in to the lunar module and backed off 100 miles um, and then came back from the docking, that was the first time any astronaut had been in a spacecraft that was not capable of re-entering the Earth's atmosphere. So if anything had happened, he, was, he would have died. It was on his own. I mean, there were all these points whereby... Um, Terrible things could have happened, but amazingly, it never. It never did. It yeah, never I did. Well, I'm, I'm always amazed by the fact that no one's died in space. Well, of course, the the crew, the Soyuz crew of three, um, suffocated mm. when they had a hole, and they came. They did. They died in space, and then they they came back. Um, oh, I thought I thought they I thought they died sort of on the way. Well, they they sort of come back from space, but I don't know. I don't know uh, which, which well, point. but it's yeah, yeah. No one's actually. That's right. I mean, the fact that the Apollo, none mm. of the Apollo missions were outright failures, you know, as in... Even Apollo 13. Yeah. What do you think is the legacy of Apollo 11? What... In a thousand, ten thousand, hundred thousand years' time, what will they remember of our century? You know, Brexit. No, <laughs> not a, not a I hope. Not. <laughs> um, even the world wars and Stalin and Hitler and... And Mao tongues, carnage will probably be forgotten. There'll be three things. There'll be nuclear power. There'll be the DNA double helix. 
and there'll be an Apollo moon landing. Mm. And I think the Apollo moon landing will be more um, more remembered than most. Michael Collins said something really quite profound. If you read, if you read his book Catching Fire, I, I'd start. I have started. It reading is it, a brilliant book. <laughs> yeah, it is the best uh, book written by an astronaut. And I think somewhere in it he says that when the history of the galaxy is written, he says, and who knows, it may already have been, the words of Apollo will still be out there among the stars. You know, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. That will be, when we're gone, when the Earth is gone, that will be somewhere yeah. among the stars, in libraries, being transmitted, being listened to for hopefully forever. Yeah, I, I, I still love the fact that there's a slight controversy about what you know, he actually I've, said. I've listened to that. Actually, I went into that. when when You know when um, uh, computers were able to take place of tape machines mm. and you were able to download audio into a computer and look at the um, spe spectrum? Mm. I actually looked at that quite, quite, quite intensely and um, I've convinced myself he didn't say it. He says, one small step for man, not... For a man, mm. you know, the fur is clean. So I asked him about this. Um, he said, well, he said, friends of mine were um, most surprised by the fact I decided to say anything at all. <laughs> and, and he said, but in his mind, he wanted to say for a man. But the guy is stepping onto the moon. His heart rate is astronomical. <laughs> and he just skips it. Yeah. Um, but it, I think it yeah, works as it is. I, I saw, yeah, yeah. I think I think it still works. I, yeah, think, yeah. I think it's going it's going too far too far, and it doesn't doesn't really matter. It still has exactly the sense that you want it to. to it, have. It's it's magic listening yeah. to that. Magic. In fact, if anything, it's more poetic. I think without the a. Yeah, I think I, I agree I think with you there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's certainly the legacy of the whole thing, isn't it? I think that's a, that's a brilliant and I, place. And to I be. think, I think we. Subsequent generations have let our children down because I've never gotten over that night, and my children have never witnessed a night like mm. that before. So I hope the legacy of Apollo will be that future generations will again witness a walk on the moon and perhaps on Mars. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. I'd love to see a, a walking on Mars, but wow, there's some work to do, isn't there? <laughs> there's some work to do. Thank you very much for for coming and you're welcome. Making making your way to Chiswick. <laughs> I used to drive this way every day when I worked at the BBC. I know it well. The Interplanetary Podcast is alive! There you go, Jamie. Oh, it's just incredible. I mean, yeah. lovely guy, and what a book. What a book. We went. Do you know what was what was hilarious about that whole thing, Jamie, is that, that I travelled all the way to your studio in, in Chiswick, Metropolis yeah. Studios, to do the interview, only to find out... That David lived nearer me in uh, well lived nearer <laughs> Guildford, and so he gave me oh. a lift. He, so he gave me he gave me a lift back. Oh, which well, was every brilliant. Cloud. It was it was really good. So I heard some brilliant space stories and some amazing revelations in the car back, which was great. Well, that's 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 uh, you know turning a bad situation into a good one. I yeah, love yeah. that. I'm afraid. Uh, yeah, I was away at the time. I'm still away, um, but I'll be back soon. Don't you worry. Where are you? Where are you, where are you today? I'm in sunny, um, sunny Amsterdam. And where were you, mid, you know, and, and where were you the other day? Were you in Switzerland? Is Switzerland, that where you were? Switzerland, yeah. Good yeah. grief. 
just hopped over to Montreux to go see the Queen exhibition, you know? It's just what I do. What you need to do is yeah. hope that you can start using the Elon Musk starship to do, like, these hops, city hops, <laughs> so it only takes exactly a few minutes. That's exactly what I want to do. It would be less time <laughs> waiting in the EasyJet lounge, I'm telling you. Oh, man. If you went EasyJet, I do feel sorry for you. Well, normally oh. they're brilliant. Fair no, play actually, to them. Fair. Fair play, this yeah. time, I was sitting on the tarmac, ready to take off for 50 minutes. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, dear. But it's well, okay. That, I mean, I've, I've heard I got here and I'm having fun. It's yeah. beautiful oh. weather by the canals. Yeah. And, oh. uh, yeah, I'm and off we... for a pancake now. What are you up to, Matt? Uh, I'm going to look at flights for us to get to Estec this year. So oh, come and yes. join, yeah, come and join us at Estec. That'd come be and join us. That'd be epic. There's a good chance that we might do a live show there. What do you yeah. think about that? Yeah. That'd be really cool. And even if All we right, don't, Matt. we'll do a live show anyway on the field with yeah, our fans. Yeah, exactly. No one can tell <laughs> us what to do. I mean, they can. Security they guards can. can. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, that's true. You know, other than that, we're just going to do it. So have a good weekend, everyone. And thanks again for listening. Thank you. Bye-bye, Spudcast. Bye. Bye. Bye.